This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 you are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? Hello, dear siblings. Perhaps you've heard before that God has a sense of humor. Well, that is true, but not in the way you might think. Often, if we say God has a sense of humor, it's so that we can relate with God. We want him to be the father we didn't have, the friend we need, the brother who will watch out for us. And if he has a good sense of humor, that makes him all the more friendly. That doesn't mean that he can't be those things. But our desire to relate with him like a friend is not scriptural. God has a sense of humor But he laughs at us, not with us. If we can laugh at ourselves, then good. Perhaps then we can stray from the path of self-righteousness because we recognize our foolishness. But that does not mean that God and us are on the same page. We all think we have things figured out. We study scripture and think we understand. We live life and think we understand how to navigate it. But we will always be tested when we least expect it, and like a child bracing itself confidently against a monster in a novel, we look foolish to God, and he laughs at us. What's worst of all is that before we even knew what we were doing, we laughed at God. This is why he laughs at us, because we are but children who think they know what they are saying. But as scripture continues to show us through the Meshalim, the stories, Every word that comes out of our mouth is wrong, and every word condemns us. Let us hear the story, starting in chapter 17 of Genesis, verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall the child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him, as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, 
and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Okay, so the first thing that we hear is that Abraham shall no longer call his wife's name Sarai, but that her name shall be Sarah. Firstly, it's important to note that it is God giving this name to Sarah and thus giving it function and not Abraham. So this is a reference to Genesis 3, uh, verse 20, when it is Adam, not God, who gave his wife her functional name. And, you know, we see how that ended poorly for all the characters involved. Here, God is making it clear that, as he has done this entire chapter, that he is completely in charge, okay? So we need to see that that uh, uh, difference between the, uh, the naming that Adam gives to his wife, him taking on that functionality, that, that role of the functionator, right? Kind of playing God in that, in that instance. Here, God is taking that authority back. So uh, that's, a, that's, that's an important distinction that's being made here. And just like how the name Abraham is a belittlement of Abram's lofty name, Sarai's name change to Sarah is an equally belittling moment. Uh, Sarai in Hebrew means my princess, which connotes not only a progeny, but a regal progeny. Ironically, this is the progeny that is more suitable for Hagar's line, actually, as it says later that Ishmael will be the father of 12 princes, meaning that Ishmael is the son of the lofty Abram. This is the way of the world, the way of human monarchy. On the other hand, Isaac will be the forefather of Jacob, who will spawn not 12 princes, but the famous 12 tribes of Israel. Right? So there is no, you know, regal line here specifically right because the uh the the regalness of it belongs to the only monarchy in scripture that matters right that word monarchy in greek literally means one ruler or only ruler really monos means only so only ruler um and when your only ruler is god you know he uh he has uh uh, tribes representing him and not kings and and uh, princes uh, necessarily. Now, of course, you know, as is uh, prophetically and kind of warningly uh, said in, in this passage later, that, that we do see that, that kings will, will come from Sarah, unfortunately, right? This is an unfortunate uh, uh, turn of events that we see throughout the uh, rest of the uh, Deuteronomistic uh, history, as uh, as scholars often call it, right? The uh, the history that is uh, that is talked about uh, in uh, the Nevi'im, right? The the uh, second section of the Hebrew Bible, which uh, includes you know books like Joshua and Judges. Uh, first, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, right? Uh, those are the uh, the prior prophets, 
And so, uh, so we, we need to keep that firmly locked away in our mind because it's, it's a really, uh, important, uh, point that it's being made here. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's been talked about since the beginning of the scriptural text that God is the only functional king. He is the only ruler, monos archi, right? The, the only, the only uh, chief. The word tribe in Hebrew is also really interesting because it is the word shebet, which is evocative of shepherdism because this word shebet means tribe, but it also means a staff that the shepherd uses to lead and guide the flock, okay? So, so uh, it has this, this uh, double meaning. This makes sense given that Isaac is not the son of Abram, right? The lofty father. Ishmael is, but Isaac is not. Isaac is the son of Abraham, the father of the emaciated lamb. So likewise, Sarai's name also changes, where Sarai meant my princes. Sarah means princess. It's quite humorous, honestly, because God is reducing her proposed progeny to nothing, literally. The word princess would reduce Sarah to a virginal, unbetrothed state. It is God, and only God, who has the ability, or the authority for that matter, to open or close her womb. In all of these texts, it is God saying over and over again, and quite loudly at that, that he is the sole originator of this progeny of promise that will issue from Sarah's barren womb. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing, the, the, the uh, imagery that's going on here. So next, I'd like to talk about the fact that Sarah will become nations, right? That's how the text puts it, become nations. This is critical, and it's an obvious play with Abraham being the father of many nations, right? Abhamon Goim. Again, it's, it's critical to understand that the scriptural deity is not interested in a particular group of people, but in all nations, right? You see that expressed in the name Elohim, which is the plural form of, of uh, El, right? He has the attributes of multiple gods, but it's one functional deity, He's not the deity of Israel only. He's the deity of the Olam, right? The the world, the cosmos, be the the word in Greek, right? It's all encompassing. And not only will God issue an important line from Sarah through her son Isaac, all generations of all nations may be blessed with the only true seed that that matters, and that is the seed of God's Torah, which is dispersed first by the five books of the law and then to the four corners of the world, as in the universality. Thus, we, we see this metaphor powerfully expressed by the gospel accounts in the feeding of the 5,000 first, right? That represents the, uh, the books of the law. And then it transitions to the 4,000, which represents uh, the, uh, the giving of that law to the Gentiles, the, 
the four corners of the the world in this ancient Semitic thought. Another thing to note, too, about this passage comes in verse 17, when Abraham laughs at hearing the promise of Isaac's conception. You can hear it plainly in Hebrew. Literally, he laughed is what Yitzhak. Okay, so there it is. There's Isaac's name. He laughed. This is why Hebrew is, is so important, especially when you hear it, right, as opposed to reading it. Because when you, when you hear it, you can hear these, these uh, connections. You know, if you read or hear the name Isaac as an English speaker, then you're going to just hear Isaac, right? It doesn't mean anything. His name might as well be Charlie. I mean, it doesn't really matter. But if you read and hear he laughed as the person's name, that would probably affect the way that you internalized the story, right? I mean, it's it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant storytelling. This long-awaited promised son of God will have a name that is mocked and ridiculed, right? Because he represents the promise. Again, remember the, the suffering servant passages I discussed two episodes ago. And that mocking is no joke because we later hear a story where Ishmael is apparently mocking Isaac, and that is what causes his eventual expulsion from Abraham's house. Isaac is a joke to the people because God's ways are a joke. They're a joke to us because we don't want to do what it says. You know, that's, that's the scandal with, with humanity. But Scripture's answer is that God mocks the mockers, as heard in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 34. Yeah, in a way, the entire scriptural story is a joke. I'm not saying we shouldn't take it seriously, but when you boil it down, it's really comical. It goes both ways. God's ways are a joke to the people, like you said, Blaze, but to God, the people are a joke in the way that they act and turn from his ways. Abram and Sarai, these lofty figures of royalty, are told that they will turn into many nations and kings. And, and that sounds like an empire, right? Remember that depending on when you place the writing of the Torah, and it could very easily be placed circa Alexander the Great, one of the greatest, as far as human terms go, one of the greatest emperors of human history. Therefore, the original hearers would hear a declaration such as this one and recognize it as empirical lingo and think that God is promising Abram and Sarai uh, that they will be like a great empire that spans the vast region of this extremely desirable land that is in the Fertile Crescent, and they will be the progenitors of many nations and kings of people. And then you go on and hear the actual story of these very descendants, and it's a big joke. This would be like some young prince and princesses of England prophesied to produce all the future kings that will rule over a vast European empire, only to find out two to five hundred years later that all of those offspring are in fact homeless peasants scattered across the expanse of the region. It's hilarious, and it totally subverts our expectations. Perhaps you can make the stretch and call them kings by lineage, but the fact of the matter is that they do not fit the parameters of what we imagined when we originally heard the prophecy of their descendants. It's like that here in the Bible. I mean, just think of all the modern Americans who say, we aren't sheep, we are lions. Those, insert opposing party here, are nothing but sheep. Well, 
to be a child of Abraham, you must be a sheep. You can't get around it. This is so against the grain of our acquired human tendencies, even to this day. The kings that Abram and Sarai produce are only scripturally sufficient insofar as they reflect the scriptural proposal, which is to shepherd those under the authority given to them by God, and to likewise submit themselves as sheep under the one true authority of God. And none of these descendants do this. This proposition God is making about their descendants is like a threefold joke. Hence, by Yitzhak, he laughed. First, the nations they produce should be like wandering shepherds, which is a joke in and of itself, because that is nothing like the expected Greek or Mesopotamian kings that the original hearers would have been familiar with. And second, instead of being like sheep, they will desire to become like the other nations, which is also a joke, because we hear in Samuel how God warns against this, and in Psalms how he laughs at all the nations. Psalm 59 says, Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths with swords in their lips. They think, Who then will hear us? But you, O Lord, you tishchak, you laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. And the third part of the joke is that even when the Israelite descendants of Abraham and Sarah are united by their nationalistic identity under a king, they are not united in God, and instead are harlots and adulterers who constantly experience infighting and are taken over by otherworldly powers. I mean, from just a, a nationalistic point of view, the historical Israelites are a joke of a nation. And that's the point of the literature. That's what it's trying to say. The human ideals of kingship and nationality are inherently at odds with God's definitions for those things. That is why the scriptural authors use the same words for nations and kings in God's statements to Abraham and Sarah, because they, like us, like the original hearers, are on the path of unlearning what they have learned. We must learn and implement God's definition of nationality and kingship, which we can only find in scripture, not in church, not on Twitter, not on TikTok, not in Christian debates, but in Scripture. If we do not, like Abraham and Sarah's descendants do not, God will laugh at us because he will always have the last laugh because he is eternal and we humans are heaven. Vanity. Passing breath. An Abrahamic nation is a nation of sheep and an Abrahamic king is a shepherd who bears God-given responsibilities with scriptural integrity. Remember the expectations for an Israelite king from Deuteronomy 17, where it is spelled out quite plainly, not hidden in a story. It says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And the last point I want to push is that after Abraham laughs at God, he offers up Ishmael to be the seed of these coming nations. Abraham hasn't been paying attention. This act marks a significant point in Abraham's lack of understanding. Ishmael was never his to give. God controls Abraham's progeny through circumcision, 
He controls the woman's womb, which we understand through Sarah's barren womb and the womb that is now being declared soon to be open. God is over everything, and Abraham is offering up a child that he and Sarah think they fashioned by their own wit and agency, which led to the affliction of the poor servant Hagar, affliction which was heard by God, which is marked by the very name Ishmael. Again, if you hear it in the Hebrew, Abraham sounds even more ridiculous because when you hear Ishmael in the original, just like by Yitzhak, you don't hear Ishmael, you hear God hears, which is a reminder of that story. And Abraham says to God, oh, that God hears may live before you. This, what Abraham fails to understand in this story, is the crux of Paul's biblical teaching. You will not receive God's inheritance because of what you offer up to God because what you offer up to God is already God's. What you are offering, then, is nothing more than the musings and self-affirmation of your own ego and its complete hevel, vanity, passing breath, again, the human. This is what is meant when you hear vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Paul's answer, which is the scriptural answer, is then to submit to the word of God and have faith in his promise. That's all you have to do. This is what Abraham will have to do by trusting in the child of promise, Isaac. It is all right here in the text, and it's further illuminated by the original language and by taking the story as a whole. And, and not even the entire Bible, but just Genesis chapters 1 through 17, of course, 17 being the chapter we are in today. We aren't doing anything special. We aren't being deceitful in allegorizing other biblical teachings or forcing some special reading. It's all right here in the story. And by simply submitting to it uh, in the most responsible way of interpreting, through the original language, the intent is clear. These aren't just some old texts written by some stupid ancient Hebrews. This literature is extremely impressive, complex, and nuanced, but when we read it at face value like it is some ancient explanation of theology or cosmology, then we are doing an extreme disservice to those who came before us, and to God, who is the only reason we have the text to begin with. When he had finished speaking with them, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house and bought with his money and every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Last episode, we talked at length about circumcision and its function. So I won't re repeat myself too much, but just for the sake of understanding, circumcision is employed here in order to establish God's control over the progeny of Abraham's house. The fact that it involves this cutting of the male reproductive organ is an obvious indicator of this. We see this understanding reinforced here when Ishmael is circumcised at age 13, which is around the age that boys start to become sexually mature enough to reproduce. The symbolism couldn't be any more clear. On the other hand, Abraham is circumcised at 99 years old, Again, practically a dead man at this point, according to Paul. He's practically dead, and now he's emasculated, 
So the text is preparing us for the fact that Isaac will be conceived and born without Abraham's involvement. It is God who will open Sarah's womb, not Abraham. And lastly, on this point, Isaac will be circumcised on the eighth day, which corresponds to the commandments in the Torah that burnt offerings are to be offered on the eighth day. In other words, the circumcision on the eighth day is a metaphor for that child being offered to God, so that it is God who has control over all the males in the household and not their earthly fathers. Again, all of these are invitations to submit to God and nothing more and nothing less. In this sense, circumcision can be analogous to a sacrifice itself. This seems to be the case in Exodus 4:24 through 26, when Moses neglects to circumcise his son and is almost killed by God as a result. In a totally emasculating move, it is his wife Zipporah who takes the upper hand and circumcises their son in the place of Moses and seemingly presents the foreskin at the feet of the Lord in a sacrificial manner. I mean, that's how the text reads. It's all very interesting, but the bottom line is that everything we've discussed in this chapter is all about God unapologetically taking power away from the lofty patriarchy and exerting his authority, ownership, and propriety of all things into his own hand. And with that, Blaze, there is nothing more to be said. God is indeed over all things, and we can do nothing to earn his favor because he has already offered it to us. God, being over everything, possesses all things. He owns all things. Therefore, anything we offer up to God that he hasn't explicitly asked for is hevel, vanity. If your father gives you the gift of a magnificent meal and you accept it graciously, only to anger your father with your laziness or disrespect at the dinner table, would you give the meal back to your father in hopes that he would stifle his anger? By no means. It's still his food, even though he blessed you with a seat at the table. No, you would simply apologize and change your behavior accordingly, and move on with your life. That's what we must do. Ask for forgiveness. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. It is not difficult, but we certainly make it difficult. Blaze, talk to you next week, inshallah. Lord have mercy on us all. Very quickly before we leave today, I just uh, wanted to, to say that, that Rowdy and I have started to receive listener questions uh, in his email, rowdywind at gmail.com. That is fantastic. We, we, we love that. So uh, this is just me encouraging questions. So if there's anything that you want us to clarify, something that we weren't clear on, please email us. Uh, we, we, w- we would love to get back with you and if we get enough of these, then uh, Rowdy and I are kicking around the idea of doing a Q&A uh, episode um, all about the questions. Uh, it's, it's a really good way for us to connect, and it's, it's a way to keep this interactive, which is what Rowdy and I have wanted since the uh, inception of this podcast. So, uh, so please, please uh, contact us. So that, that uh, email for right now is Rowdy, which is R-O-W-D-Y, wind w-e-n-d at gmail.com okay so go ahead and send your your questions there if you have any 
um, and we'll uh, get back with you probably within about a week. Um, so yeah, so I just wanted to say that and, uh, uh, yeah, so we'll see you next week. Thank you guys.